Hi, I'm Sam Fesich from the EduMagic Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. I'm your host, Greg Goins, and my special guest today is Dr. Ross Green, a world-renowned child psychologist, author, speaker, and consultant who's been working with children and families for more than 30 years. Dr. Green is the New York Times bestselling author of the influential books of The Explosive Child, Lost at School, Raising Human Beings, and Lost and Found. He's also the originator of the innovative evidence-based treatment approach called Collaborative and Proactive Solutions, a model that provides a compassionate, accurate understanding of behavioral challenges for solving problems, teaching skills, and repairing relationships. Dr. Green was on the faculty at Harvard Medical School for over 20 years, and he's now the founding director of the nonprofit Lives in the Balance that provides free web-based solutions on the CPS approach and advocates on behalf of kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges. He also developed and produced the feature-length documentary, The Kids We Lose, an award-winning film about the counterproductive, often inhumane ways in which kids with behavior challenges are treated and the difficulties and frustrations often faced by their parents, educators, and other caregivers. Dr. Green has appeared on shows such as The Oprah Winfrey Show and Good Morning America. So I'm thrilled to spend some time with him in this conversation on the Reimagined Schools podcast. But before we get to this episode, I wanted to tell you about my friends at the Illinois Digital Educators Alliance, our official sponsor for the month of April. IDEA is the largest organization in Illinois devoted to the use of technology and education, and of course, they are an ISTE affiliate. In fact, are you in the market for some professional learning? We love new ideas, and lifelong learning is part of IDEA's mission. IDEA hosts both paid and free learning opportunities year-round, attend a workshop, hop on a webinar, or meet up at your local chapter event. We are honored to support educators in their quest for knowledge. Visit www.ideaillinois.org for more information. So be sure to check out the website and connect with my friends over at the Illinois Digital Educators Alliance. So let's get right to it, folks. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Ross Green. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. My special guest today is an internationally recognized child psychologist, a New York Times bestselling author, and the developer and executive producer of the award-winning documentary, The Kids We Lose. A big welcome to Dr. Ross Green. How are you, sir? I am doing well under the circumstances. It sure is a strange time, and uh, I, you know, I can never remember a time in which things have just completely come to a stop, not necessarily a pause, but just a complete stop. 
So, um, you know, how are you and your family doing there in Maine? I hope you're staying safe and trying to maintain some sense of normalcy. Uh, you know, uh, this does take some getting used to, and this is a good, as I used to tell my kids when they were young, this is a uh, good opportunity for you to practice being flexible. Exactly right. Well, we're going to dive into your work, which I've been a big fan for a long time, fascinated with a lot of your research, the books you've written. Uh, so we're going to talk about your approach to really working with kids, uh, not only in the classroom setting, but even at home now as parents have become teachers on the front line, let's say, and, and experiencing some of those things that teachers uh, experience on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, your groundbreaking approach is collaborative and proactive solutions, uh, and that's a model that we're going to talk about from your books, The Explosive Child and Lost at School. But as we think about this strange time, you know, all the schools are shuttered, and a lot of discussion is about what's next. You know, are we going to open the spring? Is it going to be August or September? And we're talking a lot about the, the what, what's next discussion. We're also talking a lot about remote learning and how that affects teachers. But what I don't think we're spending enough time talking about is how all of this is impacting kids, because there are some kids that they're missing their friends. You know, if they don't have siblings at home, they're missing their routine, they're missing their teachers, and they're just missing that school experience. So how do you speak to that? Well, um, I think that each kid is experiencing it in an individualized way. Yes, there are those who are missing their friends, although I've seen kids do some pretty creative stuff so that um, they can still maintain contact with their friends. My 19-year-old uh, son, who's not a big book reader, um, just started a book club with his friends as a way of uh, staying in touch with each other. Um, so we can be creative, I think, on the staying in touch part. Um, the hardest part that I'm hearing about is for some kids, um, some kids were pretty reliant on that classroom teacher um, who um, may have really been helping out as it related to learning and adapting. And um, uh, that's missing right now. And sometimes that information is hard to pass along to parents and sometimes parents have been out of the loop on what's been going on in the classroom that's been working or what hasn't been working. So it's been a very interesting experience for parents, I think, to assume those duties and um, sometimes without the knowledge that the classroom teacher had to try to know how to manage things or what kind of adaptations have been in place. I think that's been tough. I think it's hard for a parent, in other words, to um, implement an IEP. Um, that's something that educators know how to do. And, uh, you know, a lot of parents I know, IEPs are not always, always even easy to understand when you read them. Um, so, you know, a lot of that has been placed on parents now. I think there's a lot of kids who are now appreciating school. I think there may also be a lot of parents who are appreciating educators a little bit more than they used to. Um, I don't know whether we're going to be back in September or August. Um, that's probably the hardest part about this whole scenario is the uncertainty. I mean, it's scary, but it's also just very uncertain. We don't know what our lives are gonna look like three, in three or four months. We don't even know what our lives are gonna look like in a year. And uh, we like certainty. So that's been a challenge. And, and you talked about how kids are, you know, remaining creative, connecting with each other. A lot of them are playing games. Yeah. Uh, I will uh, admit myself, I've been on TikTok a few times to watch what some of the kids are doing. Very creative, not always PG appropriate, but very creative. Um, you know, we call this generation of, of kids Generation Z. And I've had a lot of guests on the podcast 
talk about how this generation of kids is different. We need to be thinking differently in how we work with them. Do you buy into that argument or do you really think that all kids of all generations have had social, emotional, emotional and a behavioral challenges that are simply misunderstood that we need to recognize? I'm, uh, I'm not a huge subscriber to categorizing certain generations, um, but as it relates to behaviorally challenging kids, they've always been there. Generally speaking, they've historically been very poorly understood. And generally speaking, the punitive ways in which some people have tried to go about helping them hasn't been all that helpful. I think that's true across Generation Z, Generation X, um, millennials, you name it. These kids have always been there. They've always been a challenge. And um, the stakes are higher when it comes to how we deal with them to try to help them. Because if we get it wrong, um, it's going to be big. Getting it wrong is bigger with some kids than it is with others. Um, so I don't know. Generation Z, I've, I've read what they've been saying about this generation. I've read what they've said about other generations. I'm not so sure about that stuff. I am quite sure about uh, what we should now know about behaviorally challenging kids and how we should be treating them, no matter what generation they are. Yeah, and I would, I would agree. I think that's well said. And you know, I spent 15 years uh, in Illinois as a school district superintendent, a couple years as a principal, obviously spent time as a teacher in the classroom. And, you know, I, I didn't realize this until much later in my career, but uh, so many times working with kids, we get it wrong because we're all about rewards and punishment. And w when you really, you know, peel the onion a little bit, I mean, kids have to, um, you know, they just don't have the capacity to respond to adult expectations at times. And I know you talk about that a lot. And I remember as a first year principal, uh, you know, I, I suspended a lot of kids. A lot of kids were in detention. You, you know, go through expulsion hearings and it breaks your heart. But as a principal, it's just kind of decision after decision without really thinking about the fact that 90% of your problems are really that same 15% of kids. So why don't we spend more time problem solving with those kids, which I think leads you really into your, your CPS program. Well, I don't envy you having been in that position as a principal because number one, you've got policies to deal with. Number two, you may have some folks in your school who are expecting you to extract a pound of flesh in the belief that the extraction of a pound of flesh is going to accomplish anything. I've, um, never seen an, the extraction of a pound of flesh uh, accomplish anything productive anyways. Um, nothing to be gained by booting a kid out of your building, whether it's for three days or for a year. Um, those interventions don't solve the problems that are causing the behaviors that are causing us to do that to kids in the first place. And of course, it's not just detention, suspension, expulsion. In some states, it's also paddling and restraint and seclusion. Um, so we don't want to limit ourselves just to uh, detention, suspension, expulsion. It's a jungle out there if you are a behaviorally challenging student, and particularly if you are a behaviorally challenging student in certain states. Uh, but fortunately, we have the research of the last 40 to 50 years telling us what's really going on with these kids. And I've always summarized that 40 to 50 years of research in one sentence. They're lacking skills. They are not lacking motivation. Therefore, our motivational strategies, rewarding, punishing, timeout, stickers, detention, suspension, expulsion, aren't gonna fix what's getting in the kid's way. 
And so as a principal, wouldn't it have been great if you had had other tools available to you so that you weren't just making the decision about whether to give a detention or suspension or expulsion, but instead you were bringing your building together to focus on that 10 to 15% of the kids who are accounting for 80 to 90% of your discipline referrals, coming to grips with the fact that what we're doing now is not helping them. Education is one of the helping professions. All helping professionals abide by the same credo as medical doctors, another helping profession, the Hippocratic Oath, don't make it worse. A lot of the things we've been doing to behaviorally challenging students for a very long time have actually been making things worse and we were doing those things with the best of intentions. The problem is we didn't know what we didn't know. Yeah, and, and as you well know, um, you think about school discipline. Every school has a school discipline policy or school discipline plan, and it's really a connect the dots type of situation where you have to do this to react to a child's behavior. Um, the, the two things that have been coming more and more popular, let's say over the last 10 years, number one is PBIS. So it's the beha uh, be, uh, positive behavior intervention support system. And I, I have a little bit of problem with that myself because, uh, you know, not all kids are rewarded. And at the end of it, or the quarter or the semester or whatever, you still punish those kids who don't have enough Redbird bucks or enough stickers. And those are the kids that don't get to go on the field trip. And then the other, the other model that I think is gaining in popularity is the restorative justice model, which I think is a little more collaborative and maybe fall into something that uh, we need to be thinking a little bit more about. But what are your thoughts about those two things in particular in how we go about day-to-day -day activities with kids? Well, um, you know, as the originators of PBIS will tell you, PBIS is just a structure. It's three tiers. The problem, as I tell the PBIS groups that I speak to, is the B word, the B part of the PBIS. Problem is that PBIS is still focused largely on behavior, not the problems that are causing that behavior. And it is probably for that reason that a lot of school systems that have implemented PBIS really haven't moved away from focusing on behavior. And what do you do when you focus on behavior? You reward the behaviors you like so to see more of them. You punish the behaviors you don't so to see less of them. Even if you're not punishing, even if you're being purely positive, um, boy, have I seen a lot of challenging episodes caused by a student failing to achieve an anticipated reward. So let's not get confused here. Rewarding and punishing are cut from the exact same bolt of cloth. You are still incentivizing behavior. You are still not focusing on the problems that are causing that behavior and solving them. And the problem is that rewarding and punishing solves no problems. As it relates, so uh, can my model fit within those three tiers easily? Because once again, as the originators of PBIS will tell you, PBIS is just a structure. Technically, anything can fit into those three tiers. Technically, the problem is that a lot of schools will tell you PBIS has not transformed our discipline program enough to address the actual needs of the kids who need it the most, the 10 to 15% who are still accounting 
for 80 to 90% of our discipline referrals. Restorative practices comes a little bit closer. Just remember though, what are we making amends for? The behavior. Um, what are we being restorative about? Often, the behavior. So I'm a little bit of a stickler here. Um, if we are not identifying and solving the problems that are causing the behavior, I don't really care what we do with the behavior. I think we're focused on the wrong thing. Yeah, and, and I hope the one thing that all of our listeners can agree on is the worst method to any of this is, is a power and control type of structure. You know, I'm a big basketball fan here in Central Kentucky. Uh, I'm a former oh, high school. I'm a former high school basketball coach, and I think of like a Bobby Knight, you know, very successful basketball coach, but it was just intimidation and fear. And, uh, you know, the, I would think the worst way to build a relationship with a kid uh, is to act in that manner. If you want kids to talk with you, you have to reach out to them, get on their level, and really, be, I've heard you call it become a teammate with that child. That is correct. You know, and up here in New England, we had Bill Parcells, who um, – won some Super Bowls, but um, was pretty brutal um, to his players. Um, I'm much more of a Bill Walsh guy, um, guy who won with his smarts and by having relationships with his players and with strategy. But no matter what, um, you are a lot better off when you are partnering with a student on solving the problems that are causing their challenging behavior than you are when you are using power and control methodologies to impose solutions that you think will solve those problems. So that's where the collaborative piece comes in. Y'all are teammates, y'all are partners. Um, this is not unilateral. And here's what's amazing about this. A lot of educators who um, I've trained to do this model breathed a huge sigh of relief when they came to the recognition that they were on the hook for collaborating with students on solutions and were off the hook for coming up with ingenious solutions on problems that they actually did not know very much about because they had never tried to collaborate with the kid, not only on solutions, but on what was making it hard for the kid to meet a particular expectation. Huge sigh of relief. You mean I don't have to come up with all these solutions anymore? No, you don't have to come up with all these solutions anymore. But that's what I was trained to do. I know. I wish you had instead been trained on how to gather information from students about what's making it hard for them to meet particular expectations. I wish you'd have been trained on how to collaborate with them on solutions. And I wish you had received training on how to identify those problems in the first place. Because if you don't identify those problems, they're definitely going to remain unsolved. Yeah, and I've also heard you talk about um, there's really two rules of thought whenever you think about working with children. And the first is kids will do well if they want to, and the other is kids will do well if they can. And, and really, it's the second one that's the most important. We just have to figure out what's getting in their way. So can you talk about that a little bit and why that's so important? Well, those are two completely different mentalities, and they lead us in completely different directions. I, I like to refer to them as completely different sets of lenses. Kids do all if they can, says if this kid could do well, they would do well. If they aren't doing well, something must be getting in their way. The most important role a caregiver can play in the life of a kid who's not doing well is to be the person who figures out what's getting in the way of the kid doing well. 
And in my model, that comes down to one single-sided, single sheet of paper, an instrument that we call the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. It identifies for us the information that we've been missing. We already know what behavior the kid's exhibiting. We've, we've known that for five years. We already know what psychiatric diagnoses the kid has acquired over whatever number of years. We've known that for a while too. We're not interested in our theories about how this kid got to be this way. The information that's been missing is lagging skills and unsolved problems. And it is those lagging skills and unsolved problems that help us understand why this kid isn't doing well. Kids do well if they wanna, says, this kid doesn't wanna do well. He's got the skills to do well. He must not wanna do well. What direction does that lead us in? Not in the direction of identifying the kid's lagging skills and unsolved problems, but rather in the direction of making the kid wanna do well, and lo and behold, look at where we just ended up. How do you make a kid wanna do well? You reward the behaviors you like, so see more of them. You punish the behaviors you don't, so see less of them. You're now making the kid wanna do well. So those lenses are very important. Here's the good news. I'm always telling people, there's not a shred of research telling us that behaviorally challenging kids don't wanna do well. Not one study. There is a mountain of research telling us that they are lacking skills. That research has accumulated over the last 40 to 50 years. We ought to be paying very close attention to it and it ought to be informing our practices. You know, I think about, um, I, I'm a professor at the college level. I think about how we're training pre-service teachers to enter the classroom. And, and I go back to this, you know, we're teaching all of our, our students uh, how to put together a classroom management plan, a discipline plan, whether it's a card system or there's a million different things that are popular out there. Uh, I, doing some research about yourself, uh, I saw that if you want a school psychologist or, excuse me, a child psychologist, that you might want to be a teacher or a musician. If you were a teacher, let's say in a fifth grade classroom today, and I know you do teach at the university level and have uh, and may still be doing that, but it, let's just say you were at a fifth grade level. What would your classroom look like in terms of achieving some of these goals that you've outlined with the collaborative proactive solution? Well, what it would look like is what a lot of classrooms look like, and that is you got to be clear about what your expectations are. You can't run a classroom without expectations. So you got to be clear on that. Those expectations got to be realistic. And now comes the important part. We've got to notice when our expectations are not being met. And now comes the part where the rubber meets the road. We've got to know what to do when a student is having difficulty meeting our expectations. If I have been trained to focus on what I refer to as the signal or the fever, the behavior, which is simply the means by which the kid is communicating that they are having difficulty meeting a particular expectation, then I have been trained wrong and I am now focused on the wrong thing. Um, now I'm using power and control and probably being punitive to try to get the kid to stop exhibiting those behaviors. I would be much better served if I was crystal clear on what my expectations were, made sure that they were realistic, made sure that I was highly attuned to noticing when those expectations were not being met. And when those expectations were not being met, 
I would ask myself, can this kid who's having difficulty meeting that expectation actually meet them right now? Crucial question for us to ask. So often we cause challenging episodes because of expectations we already know a student cannot meet. If I believe that student cannot meet that expectation, pretty good chance I'm going to drop that expectation, at least for now. And if I need an IEP or a 504 plan to feel comfortable, dropping certain expectations, by golly, that's the direction we may have to go in. If I think that the kid is able to meet that expectation and is sometimes meeting it, now I've got to solve that problem collaboratively with that student. I've got to do what I call plan B. I'm missing some info. What's making it hard for the student to meet that expectation? The only person who's really in the best position to give me that information is the student. And then the student and I are gonna figure out what a good solution might be so that they are ultimately able to meet that expectation. And I'm comfortable that whatever's getting in the kid's way has actually been addressed. That's not only what my classroom would look like, it's what a whole bunch of classrooms do look like. I was on the phone about a week ago with one of my certified providers in my model who's in Canada, and she went back to the classroom this year after having been a school counselor for a very long time. And so she went from having kids sent to her as the school counselor to being a classroom teacher. And I said to her, um, what would you tell people about this model, especially as it relates to everybody's biggest concern in the classroom, time? She said, oh, I, I, I plan for time to solve problems with my students. This is not willy-nilly. This is not hit or miss. Um, this is me actually carving out and creating time to solve problems with students when they're having difficulty meeting certain expectations. And then she said, and Ross, like you always told us, I'm saving a lot of time that way. Yeah, and, and again, uh, very well said. And, and folks, I hope you, um, you know, are taking a few notes here during the episode. This is one you're going to want to play over and over again. My guest today is Dr. Ross Green, uh, best-selling author of books like Crazy and Human Beings, The Explosive Child, Lost at School, Lost and Found. Uh, I've also heard you talk, I think I was watching... Australian television, a clip, an interview you gave talking about the three steps, talking about empathy being number one, because you have to see the child's point of view. Number two would be defining what the adult concern actually is. And then number three is the invitation. So it all comes back to building relationships in this collaborative style model. Those are the three steps for solving a problem collaboratively, whether you're doing it with a student, whether you're doing it with your own kid, whether you're doing it with your significant other or your boss, if your boss is willing to go there, um, three steps. The empathy step is, as you said, where you are gathering information from the student so as to understand what's making it hard for the student to meet a particular expectation. The number one ingredient of the empathy step and the reason it's called the empathy step is because the purest form of empathy is listening. We need to understand. And for us to understand what's getting in the kid's way, we gotta ask good questions and we gotta listen. The define it all concern step is where we caregivers are putting our concerns into the consideration. Uh, what are we usually concerned about? Just two things, how the unsolved problem is affecting the kid 
and or how the unsolved problems affecting other people. We now have two sets of concerns on the table. The caregiver has now heard the kid's concerns. The kid's voice has been heard. The kid has agency. The caregiver has now put their concerns on the table. The caregiver's concerns have now been heard. They have agency. By the way, being unilateral is not the only way for adults to have agency. Power is not the only way for adults to have agency. Control is not the only way to accomplish the mission. In fact, it's a very bad way to accomplish a mission most of the time. Step number three, this is where caregiver and kid, it's called the invitation, are putting their heads together and coming up with a solution that works for both of them. And works for both of them means addresses the concerns of both parties. Yes, classroom teachers are gonna need time to do it. This is not a send the kid to the school counselor to get this done model. This is definitely not a send the kid to the principal for the pound of flesh to be extracted model. This is carving out time in our classrooms to solve problems with kids. And as I've already said, boy, are people gonna be saving an enormous amount of time that way. Some great resources you can check out would be cpsconnection.com, also livesinthebalance.org. You'll find some wonderful resources there about the collaborative and proactive solutions model. Also information about- a website, by the way. We just launched one. Oh, great. Breaking True. news. <laughs> Truecrisisprevention.org. Okay. Filled with free resources so that we can finally stop using restraint and seclusion in our schools. So we can finally stop thinking that our crisis prevention training is preventing crises. It's actually managing crises. It's not preventing crises. As I'm always telling people, if you really wanna be proactive, you're not waiting until the kid becomes escalated before you leap into action. You are solving the problems that are causing the kid to become escalated so the kid doesn't get escalated in the first place. So truecrisisprevention.org, another gold mine filled with free resources, just like the Lives in the Balance uh, website. Well, thanks for that, folks. And you want to check out all those websites. And I will put them in the show notes. Uh, it's been a great conversation. I can't thank you enough. I know you're busy. Uh, I do want to uh, let you have a closing thought and just talk a little bit about the documentary, The Kids We Lose, you know, how we can get a hold of it. I haven't watched it, but I did see the trailer and I did see some video, video clips. And just the idea that you're talking about uh, frustration, tolerance, and just we see kids having this meltdown, having this breakdown, and I think the documentary does a really good job of explaining the why and also the how that we can make some really positive changes in our schools. The documentary, The Kids We Lose, was intended to be an expose. Um, it ties the way we are treating these kids to what's known as the school to prison pipeline. Once again, the last thing we wanna do is make things worse. In too many places, we're still making things worse. So it's actually a brutal film because it depicts the reality of how we're treating these kids in a lot of places. Um, to watch it, it should be in distribution in the next month or two, but people can also bring it to their area for a screening, something that would be great at the place that you are a professor. Um, more information on that at thekidswelose.com. Um, great movie, but brutal to watch. 
unless it's kidswelose.org. Hang on one sec. It's thekidswelose.com. Kidswelose.com. Okay. Well, yeah. Thank you again for your time. It's been a great pleasure to speak with you. And uh, I'm just, again, I'm such a fan of your work. And folks, you need to check out all of these resources. Dr. Ross Green uh, is one of the leading voices um, in the world, really, on how to more uh, effectively deal with kids, not only in the classroom, but just in human behavior. So thank you, sir. My pleasure. Be safe, everybody. All right. That's a wrap for another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast, folks. And as always, do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids.